Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with me, Dan Cottrell. I am delighted to welcome to the podcast, Mike Rogers. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast, Mike. Hey, Dan. How's it going, mate? Hey, really appreciate you having me on. Like I was saying to you before, I managed to listen to one of your most recent podcasts. And if you're looking for the level of intelligence that was going down on that one, I'm not your man, but I'm prepared to have a yarn anyway, mate. It's all about rugby intelligence. So we'll be we'll be drifting into that and drawing some of the golden nuggets that we've talked about before we actually came on. So there's nothing more frustrating than someone saying, oh, we've had a great chat before we've gone to the podcast. So let's see if we can pick out one or two of those. For people who don't know who you are and where you're where you're based, can you just give us a little bit of an introduction, please? No worries. Most recently, I've been assistant coach at the New England Free Jacks and the MLR in the US, based in Boston. So got home two and a half weeks ago. Great to be home with my kids and my partner. So really enjoying that. And aside from that, running a business called Inside Running Academy and currently doing some stuff in the coaching space, which I'm really passionate around, which is a coach learning series. And I told you that I wasn't going to be really direct with plugging my own stuff, but here goes. Sign up now, eh? Got a couple of weeks. Jump on our website, rugbyacademy.global. Okay, so that's rugbyacademy.global. We'll put a link into the blurb as well. It looks a, it looks a really interesting lineup, and that's why I reached out to you because I saw it pop up and I thought I must speak to this guy because, first of all, I must speak to you anyway, but this lineup looked really good too. So before we came online, we were discussing the All Blacks selection for the weekend. And when this comes out, the All Blacks will have played Ireland. And we will know whether that was they successfully turned around from a one-all into a two-one victory. But the when Ireland beat New Zealand in the second test, obviously a crucial moment was the red card and the tackle height of the of the player striking the Ireland player is an issue and you had an interesting view on tackle height so just tell us a little bit more about what you're thinking is around tackle height. I, mean, I think as I talked to you about earlier maybe around 10 years ago chop tackling was really in vogue and everyone was tackling really low and we saw a higher incidence of tacklers getting head injuries from head into knee or head into hip type injuries and also horrific injuries like ACLs and stuff like that and I think I actually think tackling below the hips is really dangerous and something that's whilst it's not a head injury it's, it's it is really dangerous so my kind of take on things is we need to get we need to coach players better around tackling higher and I know that sounds really counterintuitive because it, it would lead people to think that means that there's going to be more head contact but I think at the moment the reason why we're having head on head and head on shoulder type injuries or collisions is primarily because people haven't been coached. I've never, up until this year, I've never coached on anybody how to catch tackle, which is effectively what people do in rugby league, and they manage to avoid head-on-head contact, and they have three or four times the number of tackles in a game than what we do in a game of rugby. And I, and I especially believe this because we're all coming out with real heavy line speed, and in order for that to be effective, people need to stay higher for longer because if you commit too early to your tackle height you get sidestepped or you get a head into the hip type or head into the knee type situation so and my, my take on it is we get better at tackling people more chesty with line speed means that we might lose the collision and they make a couple of meters but ultimately we will get them on the ground and their ball recycling will be a bit slower yeah that, that's where I'm at with it mate I think a little bit of sense needs to common sense needs to prevail on this and that we have to look at the one is their intent. So did we intend to have shoulder on head or head on head contact? And I know certainly in speaking for myself, I would never have run up trying to tackle somebody with the intention of headbutting them. Like you're most likely to come off worse off. So that doesn't make any sense. Second thing is mitigating factors. Did they sidestep late, which mean that we had some form of head on head contact? If so, was there really any intent again? 
and was it really dangerous? And I think a lot of times if we're better at teaching people how to tackle in terms of chest on chest or chest on shoulder type tackling, or we're likely to have much better outcomes. So, mate, I think it's a hard one because everybody else would be saying, oh, we've got to get people chop tackling again, which I think is really dangerous for both parties. And at the moment, probably the all the weight is in favour of the ball carrier and protecting him, and which I agree with 100%. But at the same time, we have to keep our tacklers safe. And I think if you looked at a lot of, if you looked at the stats around who's actually getting concussions at the moment, the tackler is probably the person who's getting more than the ball carrier. So we need to have a look at it. And we can't have games of rugby being ruined by multiple card situations that we've been having lately. It's not the danger of the fact that, and I know you're a defence coach, is that defence coaches have got lots of players to come quickly off the line. And obviously that is, you're cutting down the time and space, decision-making ability of the attacking team. And the fact that not only the defenders are in the ball carrier's faces, they're also cutting down the options outside. Now you're coming up quickly and it is harder for you to adjust and get your height if you're coming up quickly. If you're more passive, like probably in the 20, 30 years ago, when before Rugby League really came in and helped Rugby Union improve their defence. Do you think that's part of the problem? Actually, we're just too active as tacklers and we should be a bit more passive. That again sounds counterintuitive because we want to be more, put more pressure on in defence. Matt, I think you're absolutely right. And I did some stats this year around our season and and we're a real heavy line speed team and we also contest the breakdown hard and we got heaps of joy out of that in the first probably six weeks of the competition where we were getting three, four, five turnovers at the breakdown at a game and forcing a lot of collision errors as well where the ball carrier might have been receiving the ball and we're hitting them at the same time and the ball's popping up. There was then a period in the middle of the season where opposition teams adjusted so they were way better at cleaning their own rucks and we weren't getting as many steals there. And they're holding their feet on attack a lot more as well. So they were timing their catching based on the picture that we were giving them in terms of how quickly we're getting off the line. But then what started happening, and I really got onto this way too late, which is my bad, is we saw a massive shift in terms of where we were generating our turnovers from. So early in the season, three, four, five at the breakdown a game, maybe conceding two penalties a game. So you're happy with those odds. By the end of the season, we were getting one or two, if we're lucky, breakdown turnovers because teams are better at getting support players to the breakdown, we're still conceding two or three penalties, so risk-reward just wasn't there. But where we were getting our turnovers from were tackle strips, so we're coming out hard, we're more passive into the contact, we're wrestling on the ball, we're stripping the ball out. And when I went back and looked at the numbers on this stuff, the return on a tackle strip in terms of a line break or gaining 50 metres of territory was way higher than getting a ruck turnover. It's way easier to get the ball into space because the ball's out of there. It's five or 10 metres away from where the collision was as opposed to stuck in the breakdown. Someone's managed to wrestle it out and then they get tackled and it's all a bit of a mess trying to get the ball out of there because there's a there's a hive of activity around that area of the game already in terms of number of people or number of bodies. But I think you don't have to... I think the best defence coach in the world coaches France and if you ever look at what they're doing, a little bit of line speed, not as much as maybe what Wales used to do. Way more upright in the tackle pretty passive a lot of the time but they're putting a huge amount of pressure on the ball and so they're treating the contest they're trying to make the contest happen not on the ground they don't want to have a contest on the ground because obviously you put the game into referees hands in and it's a way safer way of tackling as well they're high they're wrestling with people and I think mate that's the way forward is not saying to people man we want you flying in and tackling below the hips is actually saying hey you can generate line speed you probably have to slow down a little bit and then how about we target the ball, which is ultimately what we want, rather than trying to predict where the ball might be after we've put someone on the ground. So, mate, that's my take on it anyway. And Okay, um, so I'm let's sure break down the... For people who won't agree with me. And the great thing is that there's many ways to run a defence, and that's where defence coaches step in and say this is the most suitable, and obviously it needs to work with the players you've got as well. So let's break down the tackle strip into... Uh, its component parts because coaches will be listening and saying, oh, okay, sounds like a good idea. How do I go about this? How do I go about introducing this into my armory of tackle, tackle technique? I think it still needs to be, like it's a two-man tackle type, in my opinion. Like it's way easier to do it that way versus if you're on a one-on-one situation, that's high risk you're going and high, you might get fended off or... Mm. 
and then we're in the shit. There's a line break situation there. So I'm really talking about one or two passes from the breakdown, which we're currently making two-man tackles and we're trying to waste people, which is actually really dangerous because you don't know what the ball carrier's height's going to look like. And quite often there's less than half a second in terms of adjusting our height what based on what he does. And if you've already committed, then I think that's when we get a lot of these really bad tackles. So what I'm saying is first person on the ball, second person can clean them up on their hips. Well, that's actually a really effective way of getting someone to the ground, but then we've still got a person on the ball and we're able to make a strip then. If not, you let go, he's on the ground and you can have a crack at the ball on the ground, which is definitely the easiest situation. And there are also instances I've seen recently around teams trying to tackle strip right on the edge when they're using the sideline as the second defender. So they know, hey, he can't fend me because if he does, he's going to go out over the sideline. And then they're just hard on the ball and trying to strip them. So... Those are probably the two contexts that I think it's it's most effective. Obviously, as well, if it's a halfback or whatever that's had a little bit of a go and you're a much bigger guy, then you probably back yourself to have a crack at the ball as well. So when you say go hard on the ball, what are you specifically suggesting the player does? I think shoulder contact in and around the ball and then just trying to get your arms around the ball quickly and then just making a real violent movement to try and get it out which is generally a down movement and then up so there's like heaps of wrestling stuff that we can use and what I reckon a lot of people do ineffectively is their first movement is always up and that's really easy for a ball carrier to withstand it like they're just going to make their movement down so uh, a way more effective way is you just have a violent movement down which will force the ball carrier to go with you in terms of trying to hold on to the ball and then you have your, your really quick movement up, which is when you see a lot of tackle strips happen as the ball ends up flying up in the air, which is obviously what you're after. But I think if you go in terms of trying to rip the ball out in an upward movement first, they'll probably be able to survive that. And you probably only get one cricket as well, to be fair. In the very old days of double tackling, I can remember that the outside man would go for the ball, the inside man would go low. Is that is that still appropriate as a, a rule of thumb? And I say it's a rule of thumb because it does very much depend on the circumstances. I just think it's first persons on the ball. And now a lot of defences, including the way that the Free Jacks defended this year, is we don't mark people, we just mark space. So we just get space and we come off the line hard. And then really you just leave it up to the attacker to, to decide who will be the primary tackler, the attacker to be make the decision who will be the primary tackler. And they might run into the space in between two defenders and then you've got a bit of a choice around who's making contact first, who's on the ball. But generally it's really obvious. So one person's going to make more contact than the other one. They're going to make contact first. And if they can get on the ball straight away, like, sometimes they won't be able to. So that's cool. You just make a normal tackle and away you go. So you're marking space, not players. You are dead. If the opposition spread out, you won't spread out. If they contract, you won't contract. You will just keep your spacing roughly the same. Is that what you're saying? Or is that just yeah. a bit too simplistic? Yeah. No, that's exactly what it is. It's equidistant spacing. A couple of little changes. Close to the breakdown, you have to be a bit narrower. And as you get further out in terms of your wing or your midfielder that's on the edge, they'll probably have a little bit wider spacing than what everybody else would have. But the whole theory around it is to stop them making three passes. And the easiest way to do that is have real consistent spacing so people only have to look after a relatively narrow area rather than if we were marking people and say the third attacker was 10 metres away from the second attacker, it, it defies logic to say that, okay, I'm going to go and mark that person and make a 10-metre hole because then you're looking after 10 metres of space. And if you're as slow as I am, would have a lot of line breaks. So you mentioned three passes. Why is that significant? Well, it just takes time. So if they are getting three passes, then they're going to have to stand relatively deep or alternatively, we're just not getting off the line quicker. So it's a really good metric for players to be able to understand on the fly, hey, they're getting three passes and that's stressing us or we're shutting them down before they get that third pass, and that will generally be a win for us. We'll get a two-man tackle, and that's an opportunity to have a crack at the ball. So we're now we've got a bit of a, uh, a plan and some um, potential targets. How are, you, how are you putting that into a training environment to make that uh, be effective? 
it's quite hard with defence, say, eh, because we don't do a lot of contact during the week, or definitely not a lot of full contact. But the principles in terms of putting ourselves into positions to make dominant tackles or win the ball back exists whether or not we're making you know, full collisions or not. Man, I'm a real big believer, and that's why I listen to that podcast with Mike Ashford on it, is that training has to look like the game. And the more decisions that we can be forcing people to make it training, the better, because ultimately that's going to enable them to make better decisions in the game. So we just do a whole bunch of 15 on 15 stuff, different contexts, players having to solve different problems, which are most likely to be similar problems to what they're going to be faced with in the game, depending on how the opposition or we think the opposition is going to play or maybe areas of our defence that haven't been going so well. So we, we just recreate those and get players to solve them as they go and Ultimately, that's made. I think that's where the gold's at. We were talking again before the podcast about helping players understand what's in front of them and helping them to make decisions. And we talked about scanning. Now, how do you help? What do you understand by the term scanning? I'm putting the, I'm throwing the ball at you there because I was the one who said that I'm interested in the fact that I'm not sure if we understand what scanning is. And I suppose that's the first part. And the second part is going to ask is how can we help players to make better decisions by asking questions after the event so let's start with uh, um, Matt, so you're really scanning and understanding here, you're really stitching me up here yeah. i'd say this yeah, is probably going to be glad. the least listened to podcast that you've ever had um <laughs> i've changed my take on scanning so we always say oh, what would, what did you see or what were you looking at and now my language is what information did you take in because there's a lot of information and often we're not in the position to scan so if you're within one or two passes of the breakdown on defense you're not really scanning you're basically making sure you've got your space and you're having a little bit of a look up you're watching the ball you're getting off the fucking line and you're just going to deal with whatever's in front of you. And that's going to be the moment that you actually start really scanning, but it's really narrow field of vision because that's the priority. We can't be watching, oh, looking over there and saying, oh, mate, there's a 20 meter gap on the far side of the breakdown because one, you're not in a position to influence it. And two, there's a more pertinent job here, which is to deal with the shit that's happening directly in front of you. And so I think a better way of looking is what information did you take in, which quite often is listening. And there'll be people in a better position to scan who might be a little bit further up who are identifying, hey, where are their numbers or where are the holes in our defensive line? And then they're communicating to people who can make easy, quick decisions to move and not run 30 metres to the other side of the field, but it might be five people move five metres each and all of a sudden we've sorted that problem out. But from a defensive perspective, we we task a couple of guys with that responsibility is your 10 and 15 who sit at the, in the backfield, your nine who's in the line but looks after the short side defence and then your open side wing and midfielder who are really responsible for making sure that we shift our numbers from one side to the other. And similar philosophies in terms of the attack as well. There's key people who need to be looking at a broader view and generally they're in, we put them into positions where they're able to do that. And then we just need a really good chain of command in terms of how that communication gets into people who need to change what they're doing real quickly without fucking up what's basically going on in front of them, which is the which is the challenge. You see it all the time in defense. Someone's seen something late, they've moved, and then the attack takes advantage of that, and there's a, they're exploit the space that wasn't probably there to begin with. And mate, that's my take on it. I'm not a big believer that everybody needs to be scanning. This is part of the rugbycoachweekly.net website. If you click on the rugbycoachweekly.net link, you will find out more about this podcast, but also find access to over 3,000 pieces of content, drills, activities, games, coaching advice, and lots more to help you and your team with your rugby and your rugby coach. So why not pop over to rugbycoachweekly.net find out more and access all this amazing content in the meantime back to the podcast okay i think that then the next bit i'm where i come to, i'm going to come to the second question but just developing that how are you coaching these players to be more effective to do this now you've said first of all that you've charged different players with 
roles and responsibilities that they're running different parts of the defense and if you are someone who's just got up from a scrum you make them you make it into the defensive line for the next breakdown where you make a tackle when you get up from that tackle what are we asking those players to do because they're going to be tired i think we we think that every we're, we're as we are now relaxed but when you're actually in the game You've just come out of a scrum. I'm talking, I only prop when I was 13 or 14 years old, when I was knackered then. Get up from a scrum. I'm in the line for the next breakdown. I've made a tackle. I am absolutely knackered now. What can we expect that player to be doing to be effective? I think there's two things. The first one is to listen because there should be some information coming from somewhere because you've been on the bottom of the year on the ground, you can't really see much of mm. your ability to scan is pretty limited at that point in time. And the second thing is, you know, I challenge all kind of rugby players and even coaches. I ask myself this all the time is what's required of me right now. And what, do, what impact can I have in the position that I'm in to actually influence the game? If I'm on the ground, probably very little, but if I got up, there's probably some influence that I can have. And then you, and then oh, now there's more time because I've got a slow breakdown. What's required of me right now? Oh shit! I can. I've heard it. I've now heard the call that the nine wants me to fold or he wants me to hold, and I'll just do that and I'll get into position. All of a sudden, life's easy because I've got into position early. But what we just need to avoid is people just doing nothing because that generally stresses other people out who are then going, "What's required of me now? Shit! I need to do two things." Then they've got to make a decision. If they make a poor decision, then, then we've obviously got problems. But I think that, that what's required of me right now is the best way of looking at what people with mental skills coaches say about being present in the moment. And that actually just grounds us straight away to what am I actually required? What's required of me? What do I need to do to deal with the situation that's in front of me? And then generally you get way better positive behaviors out of that than, oh yeah, but I didn't hear the communication. Did you ask yourself what was required? If you did, you probably would have looked up and listened and got into position a little bit quicker. Yeah, just for those who may not know the, the sort of defensive jargon there, is that hold means you stay on your side of the ruck and fold means you move around to the other side of the ruck. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, when we are challenging the players, we will ask them questions about why they made decisions. Again, chatting before the podcast, we were being a little bit cynical about how the answers came out. Well, and I think quite rightly, personally, because I think the players will give you the answer that you want to hear. How do we make that more effective? Or is it just we're not going to get much out of asking a player about why they did something? Oh, man, I think it needs to be done in the right, at the right time and place. And like, not a lot of point in asking that question at halftime or immediately after the game when they still have a lot of motion going in there because you can't change what's happened. But the framework that I like to use is what information did you take in? What options were available to you? Which one did you choose and why? And did you commit to it fully? And really the only one I'm looking at there is being really important is did you commit to it fully? And if there's one behavior that we can change is just commit to the decisions that you make because a lot of errors that happen in games and a lot of disaster moments happen when you can see somebody was torn between a couple of options and they didn't really commit to either. And then they had a absolute brain failure and they did something that, you know, was out of character, basically. And then really we can just coach them over time about how they get better at that decision-making process. But we all have to understand that it's happening so quickly that it's virtually impossible to take all the information in, identify the available options, choose the right one, on balance and that's that's from perspective of where you are and what information you had but if all we do is get them to commit to it then probably we're going to get way better outcomes and so it's actually removing that whole thing around oh you were wrong it's there's no right or wrong it's you made a choice based on what you had and did you go for it or not cool how do we get better at maybe looking at some other options in the future and then we can just design activity so it becomes intuitive and believe in that stuff around it's not really a coaching point it becomes intuitive because nobody really knows how the brain's working at that moment we've got to design our activity to give people more opportunities to make more intuitive decisions probably that they don't even know when they reflect on it how they came up with it what they saw and how they came up with it i'm interested in this word commit i'm interested in it because in a boring way I think about golf quite a lot and I keep told, be told to commit to my shots. 
and I come out of a shot. So I didn't commit to that. But in a rugby sense, can you give me an example or some examples of where players do commit or don't commit and what that actually looks like? I can imagine it, but I'm trying to picture it for a player in, in a situation. I mean, probably the most obvious one is around line-out defence, and I see it all the time. Is We'll have a system, for instance, around how we're going to defend a line-out, and quite often we don't get the one or two or three people in the air that we've wanted to get in the air based on the picture that the defence has given us. And a lot of the time that is because the, defense, the attacking team will run a movement and we'll get a little bit tricked on the movement, and then we'll be like, oh, shit, he's beating me, and then we don't get in the air. But in, we've only been beaten by a quarter of a second. And if the throw, the jump, the lift isn't perfect, we would have made up that time again and we're then we're there again. Eh? So I think that's the easiest one for me to describe is quite often we'll go, oh man, we've been beaten and we don't get in the air. The throw shit. If we got in the air, we probably would have been able to win the ball or pressure them. But it's that whole thing around how do we coach that is it hasn't gone perfectly, but I'm still going to adapt and get, get amongst it. And it's, a, I guess it's a yes, no type situation is, oh yeah, okay, let's make up, let's, uh, let's have a crack regardless. And probably one other one I can think of was coaching the Waikato women's team. We made a line break from that pursuing, ensuing ruck. We had a three on one situation and the person who received the ball off the ruck didn't pass the ball and they ended up getting tackled. And so I said to her, oh, what information did you take in? She said, I didn't hear any communication. And I think looking at the video, there wasn't a lot of communication. So that's fair. I saw space in front of me. I knew that it was fastball and there's probably space outside of me. But we'd been talking during the week about me being more assertive with my carries. So I was fucking assertive. And I was like, that's awesome. And there's a lot of information that you took in. You had a couple of options. You could have passed, but you didn't really know what was happening outside of you. You saw space in front of you. You committed fully. And you got tackled, we didn't score a try. If you had your time again, you probably would have had a bit of a look. But at least you're assertive with your decision. And the fascinating thing for that one for me was she had actually taken into consideration that we wanted her to take up the line on more in that decision making. Now, I don't know whether that's real or that was just justification for a poor decision. No mm -hmm. one's ever going to know. But that's quite fascinating as a coach. That's actually had some influence, maybe. Sometimes you find yourself doing something in order to force a player to think slightly differently, to constrain them without going into the, what the word can sometimes mean to some coaches, constrain them in order to make them slightly change their behaviors. Like in, for instance, you're trying to get a player to be more assertive. And then because they've got that in their mind, they start to do things that you think this is completely inappropriate. Like, for instance, you might say at the start of the game, we need to kick a little bit more in our games because we're struggling to make make the right sort of territory games and then the nine and the ten kick everything and uh, the centers and the wingers are absolutely exasperated by that that's obviously a bit of coaching craft how can you help players to make changes to their the way that they play because generally when we're under pressure we tend to revert to what we do naturally because as you said, there's so much information. So I know I can do this, so I'll do that. Now, if we're trying to make that them change the way they play, sometimes they can go too far the other way. Is it possible to do it subtly and just make subtle changes? Or do you think it's, well, I'm chasing the wrong, the wrong cat here? Oh man, I'm sure there's a way. It's a long game the way, and I think that's the key. And especially when stuff starts getting caught up in people's identity. So if I'm a, if I was a all black, I'd like to be good at ball carrying because that's something that I enjoyed when I was playing the game. And now all of a sudden we're saying that we want you to be standing. We're going to change our shape, and you're going to be standing in behind a pot of three forwards, and you're going to be in a playmaker role. Like that'd be cool. I'd imagine that when pressure comes on, that person's going to go straight back into doing what they've done really well in the past because it's part of who they are, and they probably need that in order to feel good about themselves but mate, i just think that we should be encouraging a whole heap of games based games based activity changing the constraints all the time having different constraints within a single game like i ran a game today it's a gamification type game with our academy here and there was six levels with different constraints in each level you progress through each level by scoring three tries 
they both got stuck on the same level, which was 5.1, which was in order to score a try, you had to kick, retrieve the ball on the full and make two passes in order to score. But if you're touched, then you had to repeat the process. And they got stuck on that level and didn't end up, oh, they, in the end, we had to extend the training by a bit to get a team to win. But they couldn't solve that problem. So I said to them, cool, go away and have a think about it and we'll start on that level next week. And I guarantee you they'll solve the problem and I guarantee you that heap of them will be practicing their kicking because that was a big part of the problem is that they couldn't execute a kick. Now, that's a great way of doing things, but I would be mortified if they all went out and played for their club teams on Saturday and started thinking that they need to kick the ball, ret- retrieve it on the full and make two passes to score a try. But hey, they might be in that situation at some point where they have to execute that skill and now they're much more likely to be able to do it. But I think that's the cool stuff. Yeah, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to change them gradually rather than make big changes, but also to make them consider different problems and see it from a different angle. As coaches, we spend all our time looking up and reading, and it's very rare that a coach will make a a massive change to to the way they coach, but they might introduce something into their coaching. And if there's a danger, if you do make a massive change because then you're out of your comfort zone which is fine but then you lose a bit of your flow as well and we're all when we're at our best we're in flow we are talking naturally we are listening we are working with everyone around us but if we've got too much information we lose that so for the players we probably got to suggest to them that they're not going to solve the problem straight away and i think that's often coaches getting themselves tied in knots because they think right, I've given them this exercise, we've done this, we've done this. Why aren't they changing their behaviours straight away? So you're saying you would hope and you see them maybe come back next week and become slightly different, solve the problem in a different way? I hope so. And ultimately, I think there's two parts to this. One, I'm a believer that strengths-based coaching is the way to go because ultimately people that I have in my team, they've been selected because they do one or two things really well. You know, they're probably specific to their position in a lot of instances and and they bring something to the table. We haven't selected them because they're really shit at one or two things or they just don't do one thing. They they might never kick the ball. They might be a winger who never kicks. But if they score 10 tries in a season and score a couple of tries out of nothing and finish everything that's on offer, then they've got huge value for the team. Why would we be spending all our time saying to that person, oh, we want you to improve your kicking game when that's not part of his identity and it might be the one thing that he's really not very good at so I think there's that and then the the second part of it is which I've just touched on a little bit is just being true to everyone's identity and I know you asked me a question before beforehand around coaches love sharing and they like taking on new ideas but do they really change and I think they do however we should never deviate too much away from who we are otherwise it just doesn't become authentic and I'm not talking about tactics or strategy I'm talking about coaching so who am I and what can players expect from me when I turn up into the environment should be relatively consistent or vary a little bit day by day but it should be relatively consistent and they should know that I'm firmly rooted in a couple of things that I feel that I'm really strong on but I'll bring in new stuff all the time because I'm fascinated I'm curious but they'll all be consistent with kind of who I am in terms of my identity I won't be doing things that I think are just totally counterproductive to who I am because one people would see right through it and two it probably does a whole bunch of damage to the trust equity that I've already built up with the athletes so I kind of see it the same way for the players is hey they just need to be firmly rooted in who they are and and we'll make some progress on some things that they're maybe not very good at but I reckon there's a whole heap more to be gained from getting them to be world-class at the two things that they're really good at already and they're much likely to feel really good about themselves as well. To develop that point further, I think that if you are world-class at something and you feel confident in that, that gives you the opportunity to say, yes, I will I will look at this and I will maybe understand that I need to develop this part of my game. There are plenty of players over time, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Marnonu was not a great kicker in his early career, but became one of the best midfield kickers out there and used to cause lots of problems so that that became part of his game now he might have been a very good kicker beforehand but he wasn't renowned for that and we're not here to pick apart why he got there but my sense is that if a player and you're saying you give them confidence in one area 
they are more willing to look at other areas when they're ready. Oh, man, I totally agree. And it's quite fascinating that you use that example because I went and watched the All Blacks train in Auckland in 2012. And at the end of training, Ma Nonu spent 15, 20 minutes practicing his little grubbers through the line. And at that point of his career, I don't think he'd been doing it at all. And I remember just saying to the other coach that was with me that day, I said, why the fuck is he doing that? Wouldn't he be better off practicing his offload or whatever his real weapon is on the field? And over the course of the next three years, he probably became the best player in the world. And all of a sudden, he was a triple threat in terms of his, his passing game, his carrying, and his kicking was probably the best at those three things in his position in the world, which is pretty phenomenal, eh? But I reckon it all came about through trusting his coaches, becoming really good at the things that he was already good at, and then slowly chipping away at those other things later in his career. He would have been late 20s by that point, been in the All Blacks for a long time. And I think that did really transform his game, but he didn't. He wasn't trying to do that as a 21-year-old when he was still trying to find his way in the team. Eh? So I think maybe coaches being patient around that stuff is a good start. Yeah, I think we'd love to have all players to have an all-court game, and that's that's a mistake because you don't become you don't become better all round as a player by trying to be a jack of all trades. And these are lots of platitudinal expressions here. It's important, as you say, to recognise what a player reckons that they're good at because that's what gets them on the field in a very physical contest, which is where you're shattered pretty much after about five minutes. And any player who thinks they're not shattered after five minutes must be some sort of miracle player or they've just stood on the wing for the last five minutes and done nothing. And that comes for you're you're knackered for a lot of reasons. And then your confidence has got to be such that you are able to achieve what you're able to achieve. The Dan Abrahams talks about how Richie McCaw gets himself back into games after he made mistakes. And I thought that was very illustrative of the mindsets that we can all take. He says he recognized that he wasn't playing so well. Richie McCaw not playing so well. And that's pretty amazing for everybody, but for him, he wasn't playing so well. And he would say, well, I'm going to do a couple of simple things to get myself out. I'm not going to make the big play. I'm not going to make the tackle turnover, which is going to win us the game. I'm going to make a very short pass. I'm going to be involved in the next tackle because this is what I'm good at. And then you slowly rebuild yourself back into the game. So the Marnono uh, thing, <laughs> I'm glad I've, uh, I've mentioned that, just to show that players take time to not to fundamentally change, but to make themselves better players with, as you say, more threats. I think there's a really good lesson in all of that stuff is we can only ever expect players to play as well as they train. And if we design our training activity well enough, we'll know and they'll know as well. So I had an example this year of a guy who got thrust into playing out of position, had a really poor training week and played poorly actually got injured, which was a bit of a disaster, but managed to come back at the end of the season and, and do really well. But he trained poorly all week. We didn't have any other option. He was out of position and he played as badly as he trained. But that was really st- like setting him up to fail. Like It really doesn't sit well with me at all because we could see that was happening in front of our eyes. Logic suggests to me that you're never going to play any better than you train because when you're actually playing, you've got 15 other guys who are hell-bent on winning the game and they're probably at a level well and truly above the team that we're playing at training, which is the guys that aren't in the starting 15. I just think the opportunity there really is to design the training activity in a way that enables our players to succeed at training, to appropriate challenge, appropriate support, I give them plenty of opportunities to solve problems and fix things, opportunity to break out and work on skills if that's what they need to do, etc. Like I think that's that's where the... That's where the magic is happening at the moment in terms of the way that we need to be doing things is really designing things in a way that we're setting everybody up to succeed. And if that means that Maanonu is putting through 10 grubbers in a training session so he can execute two on the weekend, then that are going to be really influential in the game, then that's definitely what we should be doing. Which draws me to an interesting thought, which is that we also know that some players are not good trainers, but they're better players. For some reason... As soon as the game starts, they can assert themselves in a different way. They Probably it's around the physicality part. Some of the players I've played with are amazing in training. They race onto the field for the touch rugby. They're throwing wonderful passes, chip kicks, sidestepping everybody. 
But when it comes to a game, the person who's just been wandering around looking bored suddenly comes to life. So there are those players, a name which comes to mind, which I've not seen him train, but people say it was Schultberger, the amazing South African flanker, was apparently a complete pain in training because he just wanted to wander around, do a bit. And, but when he came to games, of course, he was absolutely immense. So it is the challenge, I suppose, for coaches is to make training relevant for everybody because not everybody is a good trainer. I'm saying that in inverted commas. You can't, people listening to the podcast won't see me do the bunny ears. But how, how do we make it relevant for everybody? I mean, I think that's a challenge. There's an art of coaching. It is really challenging around the physicality thing, and I reckon that's the one area where it's very difficult to replicate that in a training week, especially at a professional level, because the players are still recovering, and then we're throwing them game intensity training on a Tuesday and Thursday in terms of the running and the skill level required to execute things, maybe even a little bit over speed as well, but we're not putting the we're not putting the, the full contact stuff in there simply because that would be a recipe for disaster in terms of them being able to deal with that load. That being said, we do a lot of stuff around a live scrum, live more, which is full noise. And I always see those players that are the ones that maybe aren't the best in the two-hand forceful touch stuff. They really, that's their opportunity to shine because we're actually going full noise at each other. And I think maybe one thing we need to continue working hard on is finding those opportunities to put a little bit of full contact in in a controlled environment to give those guys the opportunity to shine because they might not be big, fast, strong, but they've actually got a mentality that they're going to waste people. And that's really important in terms of rugby, in terms of the physical part. I think around your second example, around the guy that's a hot stepper and he's got all the skill. If we design our training skillfully enough, they won't succeed at training because there's no time and space. If anything, it should be more difficult to be that player in a 15 on 15 training environment because the line speed... Everything's over speed. Line speed's over speed. Ruck speed's over speed. There's probably not a lot of space. And I think they'll get found out pretty quickly, eh? That they'd have to be a bit more conservative. And if they're making 30 meter passes and 10 line breaks of training, then we probably haven't done a very good job of designing the training to look like the game very well. Going back to the point we're talking about sharing and coaches, from your own point of view, what's been difficult for you in terms of how you've changed, where you've thought i don't really see the value in that but eventually you've changed your mind i can think of a couple of things for myself but from your own perspective what has you've heard someone talk about it you've thought i don't think that makes sense and you've put it to one side and yet you find yourself a couple of years down the line thinking this may never have happened but i'm sure it's happened to most coaches <laughs> where they've they've eventually not seen the light but understood why it might be relevant mate i've made so many mistakes as a coach that we'd probably have to have a four-part series if we wanted to get through <laughs> them all but i think a big one for me like i never played the game to a very high level but i enjoyed the physicality part of the game and probably was a little bit of a bully on the field and maybe off the field as well and then got into coaching by default more than anything and was really firm around what I thought were the key things around how you build a team and what was really important, which was physicality, direct communication, honesty, these sorts of things. But it probably took me three years to figure out that I wasn't displaying any empathy and I was never considering anything from anyone else's perspective other than mine. And I thought that's the way that we should do it because that's, for me, that's logical. And, and so it took me a long time to work that out, eh? like you know, three or four years and I was actually talking to a guy this morning and I did a little workshop about some empathy stuff today with our academy group and he said to me, don't you find empathy hard? And I said, no, not at all. It's not hard. It's awesome. I love it. He's all why? And I said, because it comes from a place of care. And he's, yeah, but what if you think somebody's just like a bullshitter or they're always looking for attention or they've got different motives for always having shit stuff happening in their lives and maybe that it's actually shit. And I said, Maybe we've got to spend a little bit of time walking in their shoes to understand their perspective. And there'll be stuff that's happened in their lives that's created this thing for them where maybe they are a little bit more attention seeking or dramatic around the things that they've got going on in their life. 
And he's like, oh, I'd never really considered it like that. And I'm like, that's the art of empathy, isn't it? We need to walk in their shoes and we can't be judgmental and saying, oh, that's not a big deal for me because for them it is a big deal. They're feeling that, they're thinking that. So, mate, that's definitely been the thing for me is around developing those skills, which takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of practice. But if I think it comes from a place of care, but that's been a huge shift for me and definitely something that I was very poor at to begin with and is a constant work on, but mate, I, I love the challenge of trying to develop that skill because I think it's critical in terms of you know, athletes trusting us. And given what you're saying earlier, where a lot of coaching and a lot of success in sport and probably life comes around you developing your strengths and being true to your what you're good at, it's sometimes hard to look in at yourself and pick out the things which you need to change. And that's quite it's quite a scary thing, really. And we probably look back at ourselves now and in 10 years time and think, oh, I wish I was doing this better. So that vulnerability, and I use that word carefully because a lot of people say, I'd like to think I'm vulnerable, but they're never really vulnerable. It's quite hard to be vulnerable genuinely without just saying it for the sake of saying. How have you, have you coped with that? Because in, in a sense, you put yourself across as somebody who needs to be at the front and being, being a slightly bigger version, perhaps even of yourself now. And yet you're also somebody who needs to show vulnerability. How are you coping with that? It sounds like a, a psychoanalysis. Is this counselling session? Yeah, no, sorry about that. Because I'm going to turn it back deep, on myself. I'm more than happy to go there. <laughs> yeah, if anyone... <laughs> You can see, you see, Mike is now, uh, there's tears in his eyes. He's cuddling his favourite, his favourite soft toy. <laughs> Mate, on the vulnerability stuff, I'm a massive fan and a big believer, but only if it's authentic. Mm. And, and this is where the problem lies, is am I being vulnerable because I think that we're going to get a performance gain out of being vulnerable? Or am I being vulnerable because I'm actually feeling this right now? And there's a massive difference. And... People see through that shit if you do it too often. And I've seen plenty of examples and I've probably been guilty of that myself on occasion of going, I'm going to get really deep this week because I reckon we're going to get a performance gain out of this, which is actually lacking in authenticity. And it's like I said, for our podcast to talk about all my failures, but I'll give you an example right now. It's probably a good time. I've spent six months over in the US, only managed to spend a week of that time with my partner, a week of that time with my 10 year old son and three weeks with my two older kids who they came over for two weeks at that time and I spent a week in New Zealand and in six months and like I had a really challenging time of it in Boston in terms of missing them and really questioning myself around who I am and I say that you know, I really care about people who are important to me in my life but I almost had a little bit of a victim mentality around it was that it was my pain and wasn't really sharing and not necessarily their pain and stuff no doubt that, that my partner and my three kids struggle with that eh? and hasn't really been until I've got home and it's been awesome reconnecting with them and it's been cool but I've actually turned it on its head now and gone man that was a really selfish thing for me to do to spend six months away from them yeah, yeah it was hard for me but it was probably no it was hard for them as well but at no stage in that six months was I really seeing it through their perspective enough like I was a little bit but not really enough and then how much damage has that done to my relationships with my kids and my partner? Like on the face of it, probably not a lot, but who knows? And I just think that if I'm going to stand here today and say that I'm a person who really cares about others, I care immensely about the people at the Free Jacks. Scott Matthew, great head coach, best head coach that I've worked with. Tom Kindly, awesome general manager, awesome staff, great players, real deep connections with a bunch of the players. Really awesome experience, learned heaps about myself and my coaching. But that's all just the only person who benefited from any of that stuff was me. But my kids didn't benefit from that. What's there to gain for their dad being away for six months, learning how to become a better coach and having a degree of success? My partner certainly didn't benefit from it. And so now I'm sitting here in that situation where I'm going, well, man, to go back, would that even be twice as selfish it was as it was the first time? Now that I can see, not that anyone's like having a breakdown or anything, but just to see the joy and people were reconnecting with them, or it actually be better just not to have the joy. The joy should have always been there. Like we shouldn't be so excited to see each other if we're actually seeing each other all the time. So 
Mate, if we want to talk about vulnerability, I've just laid it on you now. So yeah. I'm, I'm looking at you for some feedback here. Eh? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing only because, in a sense, you have been so honest. And I think it's a real challenge for coaches. I'm amazed that some of the coaches do the hours and the travel that they do. These international coaches, do they actually ever spend any time with their children? I think this is, I think this is a massive challenge and the fact that a lot of rugby coaching happens in the evenings when that's your family time and that's your time i want to say family time quality family time doesn't mean that you're sitting around playing board games or talking deeply about things family time is spending time with them when nothing's really happening and they can suddenly just share something with you which is not seems inconsequential at the time and family time can be they're up in their bedrooms playing on their with their with their games or with their friends but you're just there downstairs and that magic time in a sense is lost however there is also difficulty is that um, as a coach as somebody who has an identity who wants to be successful if you don't take on these roles you don't try and develop yourself you don't become the sort of the better person that they might want to look up to now, I think it's really difficult. And I've been through some of these things as you have, not quite as, as extreme as spending six months away, but spending time away. And I talk to my kids about it and they have both positive and negative things to say about it because sometimes it worked because I, was, I came back energised and sometimes it didn't work because I wasn't there for things which were important for them. We see these the films, the classic film, where the son is waiting. I mean, I'm thinking of the film, is it Up, where the, the kid is waiting for the parent to come and see them in the show. And the shows are only one thing. It's just the small things which matter, and they matter to the kid at the time, and it's super important for them. And I think that's really difficult from a coaching point of view, because naturally you're away at times when you want to be with your kids. And I uh, think so you make a really valid point around that stuff in terms of, it's the little interactions that count. And I definitely made the mistake of before I went to Boston, we went away on a holiday and we did a bunch of ho whole bunch of stuff, but I reckon those were just guilt credits for me. Like I was feeling really bad, like virtually that I was abandoning my children. And so I was like, oh, let's go to Queenstown. And we had a holiday down there, but it was it actually wasn't very good because the elephant in the room was dad's leaving. You know what I mean? And mm. no matter whether we spent a whole bunch of money in Queenstown or not, dad's still leaving. And nobody really knew what that was going to be like until I left. And good question from you around, or observation from you around talking to your children. So I've spoken to my three children. My 16-year-old son doesn't give much away, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> He's my 14-year-old daughter's fiercely independent. She's like, no, it's all good. I speak, she speaks and rings me every day. We have a set video call every day and we chat about it, like random stuff. And it's probably, if anything, probably been good, great for our relationship because we're just chatting all the time, which is really cool. And then my 10 year old son, I said to him, if you had a choice, what would it be? And he said, I don't want you to go. And that's it, as good an answer as you're going to get. Mm. You know, that's really difficult, eh? But I think, well, you don't know until you've tried it. And then perhaps there are other ways of mitigating how hard it is now that but mate like you say like it is a brutal industry you spend a lot of time away from home you work ridiculous hours crazy hours high pressure and i think a lot of instances and certainly not saying this about our team but you now we talk about high challenge high support being the crit critical factors in terms of developing resilience and i would say that most professional sports teams are high challenge low support in terms of staff and that always results in burnout, people having breakdowns. It doesn't develop resilience. It just develops humans who are deeply unhappy. Unfortunately, that's the industry that we operate in. I think that the real challenge here is about the reality or the value of games. And train is fine. You can train at home. You can train locally. But as soon as you have to travel then that, that changes the metric because travel puts makes a game of 80 minutes plus, say, an hour and a half beforehand, an hour and a half afterwards, something can double the day. And I can remember when I was playing a fairly decent set of rugby, we might leave at, say, 7 o'clock in the morning and not get back until 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday. And when you've got a young family, your justification for that 
is it doesn't really stack up, frankly. And it therefore these are players who we want to be playing the game, but should they be traveling those sorts of distances? Now the difficulty is that you're constrained by the part of the world you're in. If you live in Surrey, in just outside London, you've got more rugby clubs in Surrey than you have in the whole of Wales. So you could probably play rugby quite well in Surrey. Pop on the uh, pop on what was the A3, play again rugby back, and you'd have an afternoon out. And that's it. But play, I don't know what it's like in New Zealand, but the States is probably even is probably the ultimate. You might have to do a, a two day trip just to play a significant game of rugby. So how important are the games? Games are important, but this is tough. This is tough on other parts of your life. And what you've just said about are we making people resilient? And there's plenty of evidence in certainly in the football world is that as soon as footballers finish, professional footballers finish football they struggle they really struggle yeah man i think and i think the answer to that is i think one of your questions you sent through prior was you know, how can the business world learn from rugby or vice versa and i think rugby learn a shitload from the business from business in terms of when rugby first went professional and now the flip side of that is it's coming back the other way and a lot of that stuff is really around developing resilience the challenge is that and I've spoken to a lot of ex-professional rugby players, is they leave professional rugby, they turn up to work on their first day, and it's a totally foreign environment for them because there isn't a coach or a manager there who's got everything organised for them. There isn't a coach there who's delivering everything in a super positive manner that's trying to remove anxiety around performance, which is what we're always trying to do now. Get creative around engagement tools and stuff so that there's a lack of trying to get all the anxiety out of the environment so people can actually learn. It's high challenge, high support type environment. They, they get into the real world in terms of business and stuff. And it's actually the opposite of that. It's words like accountability, which I think should be removed from the dictionary because it has <laughs> such negative connotations it's generally high challenge low support you're getting paid to do this so fucking do it and and it's an actual recipe for disaster for someone who's come out of that an environment where all those things are provided and i think a lot of people miss the point like they think the reason why people struggle with their resilience when they leave a professional rugby or sports environment and go into the real world is because we do everything for the players at a, in a professional level which is actually actual bullshit so yeah there's a schedule that they've got to follow and that but that's no different than turning up to work at nine and finishing at five like it's what happens during the day there's still a degree of autonomy in there but the difference is the environments are, are polar opposites and i know a lot of work environments are improving in this regard but mate there there's nothing like a performance environment from a, a sports perspective because as i said to you earlier we're always looking at its performance gain theory, right? What can we do in the environment this week to get a performance gain? And generally that is remove anxiety, keep stress levels low, dial up a little bit of edge or pressure at certain times of the week to get what we need in terms of training intensity or whatever, and then take it off and enable people to turn up with clarity and, and purpose in terms of the game on the weekend. So that just doesn't exist in the real world setting because one, probably people don't really care that much. And two, probably haven't figured out that supporting people and removing the stress from them is a better method than talking about things like accountability and harden up. That's how you build resilience type stuff, which we all know is bullshit. Yeah, I think that's it. I really like the way that you, it works. It comes both ways. And the difficulty in business life is actually the managers have got so little time to work on performance of their of their staff they should spend more time it's been fascinating listening to my son's my youngest son's start in his career and how his managers have been actually quite caring and he's from a sports background so he understands and sees it but i know from other places where the managers the soft skills are important they recognize it but they've got so many other things to deal with that, and so many staff members that they just don't have time to sit down and show that understanding, learn a little bit more about and understand what just is said. Pretty much every business is a people. And that's a sweeping statement, and I'm sure somebody will tell me otherwise. But if you've got people working for you, you need to get the best out of them. And authentically, not just because for because it, it's going to make sure that you keep your job because that's why it's worth it and I think we go into coaching 
for ourselves, but it's worth it when somebody just does something which you think they've achieved something for themselves, but I've been in some way, I've been part of that journey. Now, I might have said something specific to them, do this or stop doing that, or I might just have given them some sort of environment. And yeah, that's tough. So both could learn from both. It's probably, I think, was what you're saying. I mean, I, I totally agree. And I guess the key thing is just around that authenticity again. We have to actually believe that it's better for people as everything. And again, people are going to say that well, there's plenty of businesses that aren't relying on people, but generally is your largest cost with your most potential to increase productivity or profitability. So I don't think you have to be that smart to figure out that if you get more out of your people that you're most likely going to have a better performance, higher levels of retention, easier to recruit people because you're known for looking after them and no different in a professional sports world, right? Is mm. look after people, it's easier to recruit and retain, which is a massive part of our game. But it actually has to be authentic. And in order for that authenticity to exist, you need to create space or time for that to actually happen rather than filling out reports or whatever else is important in the in corporate world. Yeah. Too right. Too right. Mike, I absolutely didn't think this conversation would go the way that it's gone. And I say that in a very positive way because it's been absolutely amazing. We've touched on some great tactical, technical subjects, but I think we've really touched on probably one of the most important things in coaching really, which is talking about ourselves, not in a selfish way, but in the way that we have uh, a chance to be an influence on other people, but how it actually changes us as well. And you've been unbelievably open and well, genuinely vulnerable, whether you expect to be vulnerable at the start of this podcast, I don't know, you maybe you weren't prepared for that. But the way that you talked about it was was very moving, I think. And I think it will have hopefully, a lot of coaches will look in and think, yeah, this is I need to think about this more deeply. So Mike, that's been brilliant. Thank you for well being so open. Mate, no worries. And what I love about this is you sent me through five questions. I actually had to weave them into other answers to questions that you didn't ask because I pre-prepared some notes here. <laughs> Dear, I feel terrible I now that I didn't ask those questions. <laughs> you just put me on the spot and asked me a whole bunch of other stuff, which is, oh, mate, that's why we do these things, eh, is to get out of your comfort zone and, and try and do a little bit of sharing. And, mate, I certainly don't think that I'm God's gift to coaching or anything like that and just more than happy to share and, that's quite cool, I reckon, in terms of putting some stuff on the table and hopefully it resonates with a couple of your listeners. Oh, well, I'm sure it will. And the fact that you were clearly up for the challenge, but also talked from the heart and authentic, authentically is makes a, makes a massive difference. And I think it's very easy for coaches to make themselves as the big I am. Not, I don't think many coaches do, but a number of coaches do. But I think sometimes we fall back on that. And it is, it's, it's a challenge for us to be open and be willing to change. And that's certainly come across. And thank you very much for weaving in those answers to those questions. Actually, there were some other questions going to ask, but we've covered a hell of a lot in, in, in our time here. Just to finish things up, just tell us how people can find out a bit more about what you're doing at the moment, certainly about the coaching courses that you're running, which look really interesting. Best place to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn. Um, just search my name on there, should come up in, in relation to the job at the Free Jack. Alternatively, on our website, rugbyacademy.global, uh, yeah, I'm running Coach Learning Series 7. The interesting thing around how this came about is during the very first lockdown in New Zealand in, in 2020, managed to connect up with a couple of mates of mine who are coaching overseas and we put together a coaches group and we ran it for about 10 weeks and we just, each of us presented once a week and we had a couple of guest presenters and we did a whole bunch of learning learning over Zoom, which was actually the first time they'd ever used Zoom and I thought it was this amazing thing where people were talking about being on Zooms and stuff. It was really highly technological for me at the time. But anyway, yeah, so basically what I did last year was create a, or identified an opportunity in terms of there's a whole bunch of community developing and professional coaches for that matter who are, you know, don't have access to that type of resource. And so started the coach learning series. We're now on series seven, uh, which is pretty awesome. And we've got a, a really good lineup for this one. And really it's an opportunity for people to jump on a Zoom. We'll have a presentation from a guest coach or a Q&A. 
opportunity to ask questions as we go. All the sessions are recorded. People can watch them back later. And, and mate, in terms of my learning, I think we've done 52 sessions now. It's been the best thing that I've ever done. Like I've managed to interview and learn from a whole bunch of people. And it's really good in terms of challenging the way that you think, but also reaffirming some of the things that are deeply rooted in terms of your own philosophies and stuff. Mate, I love it. And I love connecting with people as well as we've done today. So appreciate your time. Now, Mike, that's great. And I will put links to that in the notes and links to how to get hold of you via LinkedIn. So brilliant. Thanks very much for that. This is a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. If you want to find out more about Rugby Coach Weekly, go over to the website, which is rugbycoachweekly.net. Click on the podcast button to find out more about this podcast. But in the meantime, Mike, thanks very much for that and your time. Mate, thanks very much. And uh, last thing to finish, taking my 10-year-old son, Frankie, to the rugby this weekend down in Wellington. We had a pretty awesome experience. And I have to say that when I was watching the second test, I didn't really want the All Blacks to lose, but it set this up quite nicely for it to be an epic experience for my for my 10-year-old. So, mate, really looking forward to a, a daddy weekend down in Wellington. And <laughs> no doubt we'll get along to the rugby. And he's already told me that I'm only allowed to have a couple of craft beers. So I'll make sure I enjoy those while we're down there. I'm glad that he's he's in charge of your alcohol intake. This is this is good when kids take charge of you. Thanks worry. so much, everybody. And good luck to everybody over the weekend. This will be coming out after the those fixtures. So it'll be interesting to see who's actually prevailed in the end. Anyway, thanks, everybody. We'll catch up with you all soon. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.